Welcome to the Voices of War, a podcast with a simple vision, to bring to life the true costs of war through the voices of those who've lived it. I'm your host, Maz, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, here I am again for another insightful discussion on the ongoing tensions in Ukraine. As you will hear, I spoke with a very knowledgeable and articulate expert who is widely recognised as having the ability to scratch below the mainstream narratives. This episode was recorded on the evening of Wednesday the 2nd of February, Australian time, which makes it the morning of Wednesday the 2nd of February in Europe. I hope you get value out of this discussion. My guest today is Wolfgang Sporer, who is an adjunct professor at the Hertie School in Berlin. He used to be the head of the Human Dimension Department of the OSCE Special Monitoring Mission in Kiev, where he led the civilian aspects of conflict management and facilitated and promoted dialogue between the opposing sides. Before that, he was the head of the international oil and gas company OMV's representation in the Caspian region, where he spearheaded regional efforts to promote the Southern Gas Corridor for the EU. Previously, he served as the head of the Europa House for the European Commission in Baku, Azerbaijan, and as the head of the democratization department of the OSCE presence in Albania. He also served as a political advisor in the EU delegation in Moscow and in several functions for the OSCE in Croatia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and Kosovo. He joins me today to discuss the ongoing situation in Ukraine. Wolfgang, thank you very much for joining me on the Voices of War. Thank you for the invitation. So you've had quite an uh, extensive career in, uh, in a number of uh, war zones, uh, Wolfgang. Maybe we can start by just finding out a little bit about you. How did you uh, end up in this particular line of work? And then how did you land uh, in peace negotiations uh, for the OSCE? Well, I, I uh, studied uh, law at, uh, in, at Vienna University. Uh, and then I followed this up with a, uh, with a degree in international relations at, at Johns Hopkins in, in, uh, in Bologna, where I met a really... A uh, colorful and 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 great uh, crowd of people. Um, after which, I really wanted to work somehow internationally. I didn't really have a, I didn't really have a a, a big idea of of what this would mean and what one really needs to do. Mm-hmm. So I called uh, kind of my foreign ministry and asked them whether they would second me to the OSCE as this was. <laughs> In a way, the organization that was a lot in the media at the time and so on. And they said, listen, without experience, we're not going to second you anywhere. So you need to, you know, you need to get some experience first. And then as it usually is, without experience, you can get experience. So it was a little difficult um, until one day the foreign ministry called me up. Up. Uh, that was in the year of 1998 when there was a civil war in um, Albania and said, uh, um, well, we have a, an opportunity there for you um, as an election observer in Albania, which is where they were active shooting. Mm. Uh, it was uh, in the media every day that the situation is a complete disaster. Um, so they had probably called everybody on their list, and I was <laughs> kind of somewhere near the bottom. And after a little bit of thinking, 
I said, uh, well, okay, let's, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, that's experience, right? That's, yeah. that's what it is. And uh, so I ended up going to Albania just for a short mission. I think it was two weeks. After which uh, my Austri Austrian foreign ministry said, okay, where do you want to go next? We have uh, Croatia or Bosnia for a long-term secondment um, to choose from. And that's kind of how I, uh, I wouldn't say ended up, but that's how I joined the uh, OSCE and the world of uh, international organizations. That is amazing. So, so if I heard you right, you're putting down your uh, your your successful career to the fact that a whole bunch of people said no <laughs> before you. <laughs> well, it was you know it, it has to be always a beginning somewhere. Uh, you have to do a lot during, but there has to be a beginning somewhere. Yeah, and I note that you served then with OSC in both Bosnia and Croatia. I mean, I, as That's as right. we mentioned before uh, yeah. recording I'm, I'm born and raised in Sarajevo and uh, uh, deeply experienced that conflict and and uh, what, what kind of work were you doing for OSC in Bosnia? Well I, um, I started out uh, working as a field uh, monitor for the uh, OSCE mission into Croatia mm -hmm. and I was posted um, in a field office, obviously, in the very beautiful town of Zadar. Oh, wow. But yeah. uh, whoever knows this region knows that uh, while Zadar itself is a very beautiful and very even cosmopolitan urban uh, city with a lot of tourists, the hinterland of Zadar, uh, when it goes up to the mountains, is a very, very different place. It's a place where the ethnic tensions were extremely high, where nationalism of all sorts was extremely intense, um, and where at the time when I was there, that was 99-2000, um, people were traumatized from a real post-war situation in in which we work so that was in croatia i also ended up i also ended up afterwards working for the oce in sarajevo mm. uh, in the head head office in the headquarters yeah yeah uh, as a senior political advisor uh short after and my responsibility was dealing with i don't know whether by by chance or by uh by design of my my boss, who was uh, an American ambassador, Bob Barry, mm -hmm. um, I was again responsible for Bosnian Croat issues. So I spent a lot of time traveling from Sarajevo to, you know, to, to this, to the, the so-called Herzeg Bosna That's part. That's right. Yeah, of course. Uh, to Shilpiplieg, yeah. to uh, Livno, etc. Where I again encountered extremely strong national nationalism as um as as i as it is hard to uh, hard to encounter anywhere else actually mm. um yes so I, I i that was my experience in in the let's say in the slavic part of former yugoslavia mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but i also worked in um slavic majority part of former yugoslavia let me be precise here <laughs> yes i also worked in kosovo mm -hmm. um also in pristina Right, where um, my job was to uh, 
work with the Serbian communities to uh, convince them that potentially taking part in Kosovo elections is not a bad idea um, mm. in 2000, 2001, 2002. That's already all a very long time ago. Mm. But I really did work in, the, in, in, in Southeastern Europe, in the Western Balkans. That also includes Albania, uh, which is also a wonderful country to live yeah. and work in. Yeah. But there's always been, let's say, the, the threat of a conflict or post-conflict uh, situations uh, in, which I, in, which, in which I operated. And, and I guess uh, the I guess the, the the complexity of that region of Western Balkans in particular would have set you up really well to then take on the role that you did uh, working for OC in Ukraine. Uh, maybe you can just explain what that role actually means because the title the title's uh, you know human dimension department. Um, I, I'll let you maybe explain what it actually is. Well, the, the term human dimension is something that uh, is very OSCE specific. Right. Uh, it's, it comes from the, from the Helsinki Final Act, where security issues were divided in three so-called baskets. The Helsinki Final Act, 1975, uh, fun, foundational document for European security, defines security in a really broad, or as they call it, you always see comprehensive way. Mm. Um, and security is divided in three so-called baskets. The first basket is the, called the so-called political military, uh, political military aspects. That means everything having to do with guns, uh, soldiers, classical old school security. Yeah. yeah. The second basket is called uh, the economic and environmental basket. That means everything having to do with, obviously, economics and environment. And the third basket, or the third dimension, is the so-called human dimension. And the human dimension comprises everything um, from human rights, uh, democracy, uh, elections, um, minority issues, uh, anything that you would define the, the 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 UN has a tiny bit different terminology. They call this the human uh, 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 the, uh, the, the UN. They call it human security issues. Mm -hmm. It's called human security. In the OSC, it's called human dimension, but it's the you know human rights, democracy, the soft parts of security. In Ukraine. In Ukraine, what this entailed was mainly dealing with the uh, civilian aspects, with the civilian aspects, with, with the civilian victims of the conflict. Mm. Uh, that means corroborating uh, civilian casualties. <clears throat> that means um, confirming or, or helping to repair critical infrastructure so that people would have water, they would have access to heating, to gas, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and generally working with the affected communities to see what can be improved in actual human lives uh, on the ground. And this very much also included facilitating dialogue mm -hmm. between opposing, between the opposing uh, sides and uh, 
and this brings us kind of very close to to the uh, current uh, mm. conflict in Ukraine and the current ongoing issues because defining what are the sides in this conflict is, some, is something that is done very often, very wrongly. When I listen to the media, particularly American media, and they say, oh, it's a war between Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers. I really have to touch my head and say, okay, from now on, I stop listening because you obviously haven't understood anything about the situation in this country. Yeah, yeah, and and, and that's maybe a very good place to start because that's one of the uh, principal questions that I want to uh, get into. Who are these stakeholders? Um, yeah. What is, you know, you know who are, what are the sides? Because you're right, the mainstream dialogue and narratives are so confused uh, and I guess we'll get to that but maybe we can start with that who are who are the parties well um who are the parties in the Ukrainian context I like to explain it as three concentric circles mm -hmm. this conflict really has three dimensions the first an inner circle, which is likely the least important, yeah, mm -hmm. is an intra-Ukrainian conflict. It's an intra-Ukrainian conflict. Uh, there is a, there are important differences between Ukrainians um, that run in various ways. First of all, you have the linguistic difference. Russian speakers. Uh, Ukrainian speakers. That's just one, one aspect. Mm -hmm. Then you have different historical views of how Ukraine, what is, what type of country is Ukraine? Is Ukraine a multicultural, multi-ethnic country? Or is Ukraine a country for Ukrainians? Mm. Um, you have a divided church, used to have a divided church. Um, Kiev Patriarchat, Moscow Patriarchat. Mm -hmm. okay. I also always say the best thing to know, to, to kind of spot these differences, is if you ask a Ukrainian, did you Ukrainians win or lose World War II? Because the society is really not of one opinion on that. You will find many Ukrainians who go out on 9th of May proudly celebrating the victory over Hitler. And you will find many who will say, okay, that was the loss of our nation. That was the beginning of our occupation by Russia. By Russia. Wow. So okay. it, it really, and this all goes back to World War II. Uh, as, as you probably know, one of the big, one of the biggest, and let's say most controversial figures of Ukrainian history is a person called Stepan Bandera. Mm -hmm. Stepan Bandera is for a, a small part of Ukrainians, a real national hero in the center of Lemberg, of Lviv, Ukrainian, mm -hmm. North Russian, they erected a statue to Stepan Bandera. Um, in the east of Ukraine, uh, in Donetsk, also in Kharkiv, uh, Dnipropetrovsk, Stepan Bandera is akin to a real historical villain Hmm. Somebody akin to Hitler, like a really full villain. Um, who was Bandera? Bandera was a Ukrainian nationalist fighter who 
fought for the Ukrainian nation, but also um, happened to ally himself with the Nazis, with the with with with, with Hitler Germany, in order to because he thought he would get Ukrainian independence out of this, which was a- so okay. So this now makes sense why the um, uh, just in the in the Security Council. Uh, the Russian, uh, 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 there wasn't foreign minister. I'm not sure who was that was speaking. It was, yeah, it was the U.S. the, the UN, UN ambassador. Yeah, no, UN. Yeah. Sorry, that's right. That was uh, basically accusing uh, uh, the West of of basically promoting a Nazi regime, and maybe that's perhaps the link uh, that they're trying well, that to invoke. Is the Russian narrative? Wow. Okay. That even though Zelensky is Jewish, part. which I find absolutely bizarre, right? That is the core Russian narrative. I mean, there is, as to many narratives, it's complex. Yeah, complex, you know? of course. Um, what is it? What is it with us Slavs? <laughs> on the on the Maidan yeah. in yeah. 2014, yeah, which was really a grassroots movement where people were, you know, demonstrating for more democracy, more Europe, more uh, freedom. I mean, what people generally know about the Maidan. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, there were people running around and demonstrating with a picture of Stepan Bandera, of this historical figure who was actually allied with the Nazis, mm. which made it quite easy to frame for the Russians to frame the narrative that these are all, all the people who support the Nazis. This is the new Nazi regime. This is the Banderovci regime. So that's uh, that 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 there is something behind everything, yes. And I was actually listening to Nepencia and I thought, yeah, yeah, okay, here we go again with the Russian. So these are the divisions inside yeah, Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. Largely, largely, not hundred percent, but largely, this is also East and West. That means in the West, you have the you know Ukrainian speaking people who would have a particular view of history, who would think that uh, many of whom would think that Ukraine did actually not win World War World War II, who have a positive to a neutral view on uh, Stepan Bandera, um, who have always who are looking mainly to Poland, to to the West, and in the eastern part of the country, largely it's not you know it's not a stark division. You have the people who, for whom Stepan Bandera is a is a villain, uh, who would uh, historically really look to Russia for the you know for mm. the next big uh, country, who are very proud of the role of Ukraine and Ukrainians in World War II, um, and who have that particular let's say uh, view of history. So that's mm. the inner the inner concentric circle. Right. Can, can I just ask a question on that? Because yeah. I mean, as you're talking, I'm I'm hearing echoes of Bosnia, uh, where the you know the confusion between ethnicity and nationality played such a big role. Where you know uh, defining yourself as a as, as a Serb in Bosnia, it, it yeah. basically it, it it dictates your affiliation to you know to the east to Serbia, or defining yourself as a Croat in Bosnia. Uh, you know, your loyalty is generally to the west, uh, to Zagreb, um, and and yeah, that's yeah. that was one of the one of the issues that it, the the Bosnian national identity uh, was always uh, diluted because of the I guess ethnic uh, nationality. Is that something similar? Because that's what that's kind of at least. What I, I, I would be very 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 careful. I, I will come to this to make to make this comparison um, because it could be very easily misleading. And I'll tell you why. Okay. Mm-hmm. These inner divisions 
these inner Ukrainian divisions are something that you have in many other countries as well, mm-hmm. without a war and without a conflict. Yeah, these divisions have been there uh, forever, ever since there is Ukraine for the past, you know, 13 years, independent Ukraine has never led to war. We have these divisions in Austria, mm-hmm. the Western Austrians, they have a completely different dialect than we have. In, in, it's, a, it's a really small country, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so politically, it looks different in Western Austria than in Eastern Austria, a small country. Huh? Mm-hmm. So these divisions... In the case of Ukraine, would, without Russian help, not have led to war. They would have not led to war. There was never a spark of a Ukrainian civil war over language, over ethnicity, over Stepan Bandera, over this and that. But, of course, the substance for conflict was there, as it is there in many other countries. But it needed the spark, and that spark was, I mean, in the case of the Ukrainian situation, it was more than a spark. It was a little bit like a flamethrower mm. that ignited this, this kind of uh, substance, was ignited by, by Russia. That, that's, that's very clear. So divisions, yes. So again, you know, the narrative is always interesting. When you ask a Ukrainian, let's say, official Ukrainian or no Ukrainian, very whatever, Ukrainian nationalist or patriot, mm-hmm. it is, you, you mention uh, in a Ukrainian tension, they say, no, 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 we don't have any tensions. No, 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 no. This is not a civil war at all. No, no, don't, don't. There's nothing to see. Move on. It's all Russia. It's attacked from Russia from the outside. Right. When you ask... Uh, the Russians, when you ask uh, Mr. Nebensia, he said, this is a Ukrainian civil war. We have nothing to do with that. <laughs> with, with, yeah. This is an inner Ukrainian matter. Yeah. Uh, we're there. We're happy to, uh, uh, to, to mediate in this conflict uh, between these parties. But that's a Ukrainian civil war. Yeah. The reality is obviously, while a little, bit, a little bit closer to the Ukrainian than to the Russian position, but it would be lying to oneself if one would deny this existence of these historical mm. and current tensions in, inside Ukrainian society, okay? Yeah, yeah. But we're only at the we're only at First the circle. Yeah. So we're, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're moving at snail's pace with the explanation <laughs> of the conflict. Yeah. It's only the inner circle. The, the second circle is a is a Russian-Ukrainian bilateral problem. Is a is a historic is the historical relationship between Russia and Ukraine. Um, that doesn't need so much uh, so much uh, explanation. Um, obviously, Russia uh, needs Ukraine for transit of pipeline, uh, for transit of gas. They hate being really dependent on Ukraine for that. That's also why they did not stream two. Um, uh, they, de- they depend on Ukraine for many industrial issues, you know, helicopter engines. But uh, so that's that's one thing. Russia really needs Ukraine. Ukraine also really used to need and still needs Russia. Geography, it's hard to change geography. Uh, Ukraine is not an island. So there are very, and when you start playing with these mutual dependencies, Mm. With uh, you know, playing with a gas issue, playing with a transit issue, um, 
playing economic games here and there. Um, that also fuels conflict. That can easily mm-hmm. spark conflict. If these are really important things. Yeah. Gas for Russia is so important. We'll come to that. Actually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's the second dimension. And the third dimension is uh, is the east-west dimension. The, the the third dimension is the east-west dimension. And the east-west dimension is the one we are now really seeing playing out. And it, it, the east-west dimension is, I, I think it was Przezinski, uh, speaking of Przezinski, security advisor to uh, Jimmy Carter, who said, uh, with Ukraine, without Ukraine, Russia is just a big country. And with Ukraine, it's an empire. Hmm. So... And that you know you don't need to know much more than that. Uh, when you look at NATO and at the Americans moving into Ukraine, joining Ukraine to NATO into the American sphere of influence is an ultimate goal, an ultimate victory. It's the forward patrol base of NATO to have rockets, soldiers. You know, five hours drive from Moscow, that, that's a, a, a Cold War hawk's dream. Mm. So they have consistently, consistently, and here I'm mainly talking about the U.S., not so much the European allies are a little bit more cautious here, mm-hmm. but clearly, strategically, Ukraine as the forward patrolling base for NATO is a huge strategic goal, yeah? Mm. The same goes for the Russian side. Russia does not, let's put it like this, Russia thinks that they just cannot allow that under any circumstances. Hmm. They have historical experiences. Napoleon came through these lands. Hitler came through these lands. Um, They think that having... Uh, an ally, an alliance which they perceive to be an enemy, uh, right there at their doorstep in their historical brother on which they are dependent in so many ways, is just not acceptable. Mm. Kind of a red line. So here we have the east-west dimension of this of this entire conundrum. So just to repeat, Ukrainian conflict in a 10-minute in a short 10-minute analysis, three circles, inner circle, inner Ukrainian tensions, second circle, Russian-Ukrainian bilateral issues, third circle, east-west, east-west dimension playing out in, in Ukraine. And, and, and Only behind the conflict, if you ask me. That's a, that's a wonderfully visual way to represent uh, the conflict as well. And, and I thank you for that because I think that's a very useful way and not one that we often hear because one of the things, and, and it strikes me as though the grand narrative or the third circle of the East and West is the one that's at play the hardest at the moment, right? And because we know also that, you know, even, you know, President Zelensky uh, himself has said, hey, this is not, nothing's, nothing's new, not just just stop the war it's rhetoric. Very interesting. Which which I, which 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 is, is is confusing, right? So it strikes me that that third circle is is really the one that's at play here, and and my mind boggles because that to me is, it, it almost seems surreal that that's where we are. That we are really in this kind of cold war mentality, uh, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, east west. Yeah. yeah. 
I think I think what you're saying is 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 extremely pertinent, and for me, this is also uh, one of the how should I put it uh, most disturbing parts of the current debate. The more the tensions rise, the less people talk about Ukraine. Hmm. Ukraine doesn't even seem to play a role anymore. Hmm. Ukraine is basically as it used to be so many times in history, a pawn between East and West. And this is really, really, really sad. And Zelensky's position is, I believe, extremely interesting because in the beginning, I think that in the beginning, Ukraine really had an interest in, you know, playing this up because Mm -hmm. the conflict in the East, which is ongoing, where there is ongoing shooting every day, read the reports of the the OEC, they are public, everyday shooting. Yeah. This had a little bit vanished from the from the headlines. These people were saying, yeah, okay, it's like this frozen conflict, which it is not. It's not a frozen conflict. But this had really vanished a little bit from the headlines. So I think initially Ukraine was rightly quite, you know, quite uh, content that, uh, that it was uh, back in the headlines that it was actually really highlighted that Ukraine is a victim of Russian aggression, which it is. There is no question about it. The conflict in the East, as I have said to you, mm. would have never broken out without Russian without Russian ignition providing the spark. Mm. So that was okay. Meanwhile, the, uh, the discussion has become so surreal and uh, and so hysterical, partially, that um, the president of Ukraine says, "Hey guys, listen, don't don't you know run away to Germany. Nothing has happened. Nothing has happened. What has not happened? What had not happened for the past you know uh, four five yeah. years? Yeah. I, one thing that also is completely out of the headlines these days is." That this Russian troop concentration mm. that is now existing on the Ukrainian border is something that is not happening for the first time. It had happened in the spring of 2021. It had happened in 2020. It had happened before the pandemic. This is not a first time or particularly remarkable event. Um even at these so, numbers, I mean, with you know the the figures that are yeah. being thrown around is one hundred thirty thousand, and you know they're being dragged from you know in from Siberia, etc. And uh, you know there's a that you know again Where, that's part of the narrative. Yes, that's part of the narrative, and I would be very, um, I would say, cautious when it comes to descriptions of what is actually happening and how many soldiers they actually have uh, in what location. And I will tell you why I would be cautious. Russia is not putting these information out. Russia does not say we have amassed, you know, 150,000 troops and they are there in case they haven't said anything. So um, our information that we have is in essence, um, leaked intelligence yeah mm-hmm. it's intelligence that's either that is either you know transported to the media by politicians politicians have interests there is nothing bad about it but politicians have interests of course yeah um 
or it's done by leaked intelligence. Like many media say, oh, we have intelligence sources and uh, uh, European bureaucrats are saying, oh, we get secret intelligence from here and there. Uh, we have been talking to the, uh, you know, to these and these groups. And uh, this leaked intelligence can only be trusted in so far that one takes account, that one takes into account that whoever leaks that intelligence leaks politically curated intelligence. Mm. If you want to present a certain picture for your own political narrative and you have intelligence and you want to convince somebody, you're going you're to share the part of intelligence that, you know, that you want to, that you want to, uh, that you want out there. Mm. And you're not going to hold back. This is, this is completely normal. Mm. But you cannot trust numbers that come from politicians without any corroboration as a, as a, as a necessarily accurate mm. picture, a reflection of reality. But, but, so but, it was, uh, but to be fair as well, in, in, in that case, I mean, it was also, the, I think the Pentagon just put out, I think it was over the past 24, 48 hours, I've read in the New York Times, that they've put out official statements saying that, you know, not only is there you know, 130,000 troops amassed uh, around uh, Ukraine, but also that Russia now has the capability to invade whole of Ukraine, which which to me was preposterous after, and I'm not sure, I think you might have heard my chat to uh, your former colleague, Arne, uh, who, you know, echoed that sentiment that, that to actually invade whole of Ukraine w- would require lots and lots more. Uh, but what, do you, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. My thoughts on that are, does Russia have the capability to invade all of Ukraine? Yes, absolutely. Does Germany have the capability to invade all of Austria? Yes. Does the US have the capability to invade invade all of Canada? Yes, of course. That's not the question. The question is, will they do it? Is there an interest for them to do it? Mm. Uh, And here I would really caution, and I would say that Putin so far has always been a, a, a rational actor in, 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 in foreign policy. And Putin's domestic policy is horrendous. What they have done with Navalny is a crime. The, 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 the decline of human rights in Russia and free speech is an absolute disaster. But that does not take away from the fact that in foreign policy issues, he has been a rational, not a good, benign, but a rational actor. Mm. Invading Ukraine would be a totally irrational and, frankly, extremely stupid thing to do. Mm. Um, Mm. It would Mm -hmm. be stupid because they would face a uh, resistance. First of all, the the war would be very bloody, horribly bloody. Secondly, they would face an ongoing guerrilla war with the Ukrainian population, well-armed, by the way, Ongoing compared to which Chechnya was a, a, I mean, not even yeah. not mentionable a cakewalk. Plus, the West would be fueling this this kind of uh, situation with political support, weapons, intelligence, etc. So, I think to invade uh, the whole of Ukraine is a scenario. That would be so dumb and so horrible. No one would profit from it. That, in light of the fact that Russia has, that Putin has been a rational, rational, 
uh, political actor I do not regard as very likely. Um, the same, by the way, goes uh, for invading other parts of Ukraine. I mean, they have, by all ration, by all you know, by all standards, already invaded part of, of course, yeah. part of Ukraine. Um, but to take this further would just do the same I just described, just on a smaller scale. It would mean that whatever they do not occupy would join NATO more or less immediately or without joining NATO would become a forward patrol base for America, for the West, for, uh, they would face the same, uh, they would face the same resistance from the local population wherever they go now. Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. So also that would be a very, very, very irrational move, which I, which I, I, I hope my, my wishing does not influence my rational thinking, but both of them say, no, it's not going to happen. Mm. Okay. So, so, well, I guess now we're getting to the crux of it all because we're, we're, we can safely say that the inner circle of the three concentric yeah. circles is not really influencing what's happening right now. We can also no. say, because that's status quo, right? That's the, that's the ongoing uh, Ukraine identity that's still unfolding yeah. and it's an internal uh, yes. uh, uh, discussion. We can also yeah, probably yeah. say that the, 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 the second one uh, is status quo, nothing new, right? This is all since 2014. The ongoing uh, tensions between Russia and Ukraine uh, aren't new, uh, even to the point that since December, nothing new has really happened. And while we can also yeah. comfortably say that it is the third circle really that we're talking about is because it was in December that when all this started is when Putin put the uh, 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 demands forward uh, to NATO, in other words, to US, uh, because it's NATO in, yeah. the eye, in the eyes of Putin, but also in reality, uh, NATO is the US, right? Yeah. Um, so therefore, we are now talking, you know, it, it is between two presidents, uh, you know, between, uh, you know, the Russian Federation and uh, the United States of America. That's really what this comes down to. So what what do either of those, so Biden and, and Putin, what do they stand to gain from this current uh, crisis? Uh, if we assume that both of them are in one way or another, uh, fueling it, right? Because, you know, the, 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 on one hand, Putin is undoubtedly, he's the one that, that threw the letter in saying, these are my demands, uh, and kind of, uh, threw, you know, threw the cat amongst the pigeons, as they say. Uh, but of course, US, US yeah. is, is, is really ramping up the rhetoric uh, of inevitable war, yeah. uh, inevitable invasion. So, 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 so you know, what, what drives these two leaders? Well, you're asking... Uh the question about the interests of the of the sides. Uh, let's look at the US side, um, which is a little bit easier to explain, I believe. Easier, but also more murky, if that's mm -hmm. possible at the same time. Yes. Yeah. Um, because I can only think of a couple of reasons why the US is, 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 is so active in ramping up tensions that even the Ukrainians are saying, hey, guys, no, 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 leave us out of this. It doesn't matter anymore. No, no, no. Yeah. And the U.S. media, the U.S. media, it's only about scenarios how Russia invades via this river or via this ridge, which is all completely uh, mad, if you ask me. So why are they doing this? I mean, as we all know, Biden is in a horrible situation back home. Huh? Biden is in a situation that he has control, 
they, they've, uh, he, 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 he should have control of the Senate, which he does not. He has not gotten through uh, two of his big political uh, uh, agendas. Uh, his popularity is really low. So in a very, let's say, uh, 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 simplistic way, that's usually what U.S. presidents have done when the domestic agenda looked really, really bad. One focuses on a big uh, international threat uh, discussion uh, where you can look uh, tough, uh, where you are, you know, in a big leading position. And also the U.S. credibility in, in, in uh, international affairs has been damaged so badly by the uh, by the withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, and have and that was only the latest the latest uh, let's say iteration of this damage of, of U.S. of U.S. Uh, uh, image abroad. It has also been damaged really badly by their well, what's the diplomatic word for betrayal of the Kurds in northern Iraq? Um, so that really got them in the place where many allies would think, okay, we, the U.S. as a friend is, is absolutely, you know, worthless because they they let their allies down. That may be another thing to say, okay, now we need to really stand up for our ally Ukraine. So it, it has, I think, these two dimensions mm. on, the, uh, on the U.S. side. On the Russian side, it's, as always, as many things that have to do with Russia, a little bit more complex. Uh, I think that the Russians have these security interests. Well, they think they have these security interests, yeah, which they put in the letter. Yes, the troops and NATO and this and that. Um, but they also have other interests. Um, and the Russians will look at this from a holistic perspective, from a holistic perspective. And there are parts of Russian demands and wishes that are in the letter. I'm not saying that these are pretend wishes. They are real wishes. But there are also other wishes and other interests uh, that, are not, that are not in the letter. Mm -hmm. um, and mainly here, we need to talk about gas exports and mainly about the Nord Stream 2. Mm -hmm. Russia has invested a lot of money into this pipeline. The pipeline is absolutely ready. And it's, it's, it's it, and, and just to, just on Nord Stream two, just to yeah. clarify for, for my own sake, it's owned yeah. by uh, Gazprom, right? Which is a, a, mm -hmm. effectively a Russian state, uh, if That's not owned, great. but it's a very heavily influenced uh, uh, company, right? It's majority owned, majority, majority owned by a Russian okay. state company, right. by Gazprom. Yes. Yeah. So um, indeed, and and there have been political problems in Europe and regulatory problems in Europe. Why this gas pipeline is not is not is not starting yet? Um, many European countries have opposed this gas pipeline strongly. Ukraine has opposed it strongly. Poland has opposed it strongly. Most European countries, except Germany and Austria, have had by now come out strongly against having this gas pipeline running. Huh? That was before this kind of war talk mm -hmm, right now. Mm -hmm. Now, there has been an interesting shift in, uh, in rhetoric over the past couple of days. And the shift uh, of rhetoric has been as follows. 
until the spring of this year, uh, until, uh, sorry, until the fall of last year, shortly after the German elections, many people thought Nord Stream 2 was dead. And many thought, okay, now we have the Greens in the government in Germany, the new foreign minister Baerbock, she was very critical when she was not uh, foreign minister. Um, people would have thought, okay, they, they, they will, they, there will not be a German permission to operate uh, Nord Stream mm. 2. There's European pressure, et cetera, et cetera. U.S. pressure, strong U.S. pressure. Uh, just before we get too, just before we get yeah. too bog, bogged into it, I just want to ask a clarifying question for, because a lot of my audience might not yeah. be aware why Nord Stream Two was uh, so uh, yeah, uh, so sensitive, that. particularly and and, uh, and and if I'm correct, it's very different yeah. for Ukraine and and Poland to what it is yeah. for Western Europe. You know, yeah. for why the UK was uh, was against it, That's why France. So it might be just worth uh, uh, clarifying yeah, that. Before. Mm-hmm. Nord Stream Two is a gas pipeline that connects Russia directly with Germany through the sea. Up to this point, Russia was exporting their gas to Germany largely through Ukraine. So Ukraine got a lot of transit fees. It had control, de facto control, how much Russia can export to their main customers in Germany. Mm. And so Russia decided to circumvent Ukraine, build a new pipeline uh, to uh, have direct deliveries of gas to Germany. And this is why it split Europe in people who really love this pipeline, because they were no longer dependent on you know, uh, 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 unreliable transit countries. Mm. Well, well, yeah, the second, the second circle, right? <laughs> That's the second circle. Yeah, yeah. They That's precisely yeah. the second circle. Precisely yeah. that, you know. Um, and people who said this is dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. It splits Europe. It hurts Ukraine. It uh, it makes uh, Russia. It, it it increases the power of Russia over Europe. It makes Germany dependent on Russia. That's what Russia wants, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there have been U.S. sanctions against this pipeline, um, which then have gone away. Uh, Biden has taken them back, but Trump, very strong U.S. sanctions on that pipeline. So that pipeline was, it, it was really in trouble, right? Mm. Let's let's just focus where we came. The pipeline was really in trouble. Mm. U.S. sanctions, German Greens, a new government, uh, split Europe. But the Russians really want this pipeline, Yeah. Now the new rhetoric. That's the situation until, you know, November, October, November last year. Now new rhetoric coming out from Europe, repeated by the United States. If Russia attacks Ukraine, there will be no Nord Stream 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay. What does the reverse conclusion mean from that? It means that if there is no invasion... There yeah, will be no Yeah, yeah, it's if, conditional. Yeah, that's right. It's it's a it's a it's an if then condition, right? If invasion, yes. no no Nord Stream, and then if you yeah. flip, if you flip it, if exactly. no invasion, then Nord Stream. So it's a, yeah, exactly. Mm. So um, and then there are people who says, well, if that's what it takes to you know appease the Russians, uh. But to have a pipeline that generally makes a lot of sense at the end of the day, I'm not going to go into this 
debate. It's a long, long, long debate. I worked in the gas industry of value, mm. so I may be a little bit biased. Yeah, but yeah. that is you know from an economic perspective kind of makes sense. And, and so, and, and just to yeah, and just to double tap on that, it's not just Germany. Just to make that clear, it's, it wouldn't be just Germany that benefits from Nord Stream two, right? It's 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 majority of uh, the EU countries that would to some extent uh, less or more benefit from it. The benefits is a dangerous word. Who knows who benefits? Uh, who would receive gas from Nord Stream? <laughs> okay. That's how yeah, I would. Okay. That's yeah, how good. Yeah, okay. No, I would word it. That makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. yeah because yeah. there's already a value judgment in benefits. Yeah? Agreed. So, Agreed. Agreed. So, so here we know it wouldn't be just Germany, Austria, Eastern Europe, very much. Uh, mm. No, no, that, that that's true. So this is this is an interesting aspect, right? So, um, and then I will also point you to a to an interesting aspect of Russian foreign policy that if you go back for the last, uh, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, particularly since uh, Mr. Lavrov has been foreign minister, uh, there is a pattern recognizable. There is a pattern recognizable to ramp up tensions, ramp up tensions, ramp up tensions, ramp up tensions, make threats horrible, 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 and then climb down one step and be rewarded for it, hmm. for being constructive, reasonable, etc., etc. So you yourself ramp up tensions, make threats, make everything unstable and horrible. Then you climb down one step and you get. Uh, you get you get you know rewarded with some concessions here, some concessions there, concessions somewhere else. I would not exclude that this is kind of at least part of the Russian scenario how they uh, how they look at how they look at things at the moment. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, it, that also strikes me as though that's uh, straight out of the uh, the 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 tool book or the rule book of uh, Trump as well. I mean, it's, or maybe it's an authoritarian uh, bent uh, towards that, that it's, yeah. uh, you know, threaten, mm-hmm. threaten, threaten. Uh, and then, you know, whatever, whatever you then can secure after that is, uh, you know, is, is better than what you started with. Well, yes. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, I mean, we can cite examples from, from Russian policy in that regard yeah yeah that's that, that that's one possibility i'm not saying i'm speaking the absolute truth yeah. we get to chat and to give you yeah. my best my best thinking and I, I i benefit there is one thing why i think that i have a something to say about this on occasions because I've lived and worked in both Russia and Ukraine. I wrote and I know the Russian narrative and the Ukrainian narrative from wonderful, good, reasonable people on, on, on both sides. Mm-hmm. Which on that, I know this is a toxic, there is a toxic element to this quote, but there are really good people on both sides. In mm. this. Oh, I, I couldn't. I mean, uh, again, as an ethnic Bosnian, uh, yeah. I, I grew up with the shadow of the war, uh, you know, hanging yeah. over me. And of course, you know, a deep influence against the, uh, you know, the Serbs who were the aggressors and so on. But inevitably, you know, that's the politics and that's the narratives. Uh, on both sides, there are good people, yeah. you know, fighting, fighting for what they believe is uh, is is their truth. Yeah. So, what, what do you yeah, then yeah. make of what do you make of President Putin's, uh, uh, you know, well, what ended up being his first public comments uh, that he made today, uh, standing next to 
you know, his closest ally in NATO Orban. slash EU, Orban. <laughs> um, what do you make of his comments? Because he because he was trying to, uh, and some analysts are saying he was trying to uh, uh, almost appease, although he did very clearly state that, you know, uh, uh, the response from the US to his demands uh, completely avoided uh, any acknowledgement of Russian uh, perspective or Russian fears, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but 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 he wants to continue talking. What 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 do you what do you make of those? Given what you just said about the Russian kind of uh, playbook, well, I would say they are they are not yet where they want to be, but they're kind of somewhere along the way. Mm, mm, mm. I think that would be the best interpretation of this. I mean, standing next to standing next to Orban, it, it's very clear that that NATO is is particularly European. Union is is not is not united in their in their Russia in their Russia policies. You have everything. I mean, again, I would I want to make it very simple and simplistic. There is two European, let's say, wings on Europe versus Russia. The one wing says there is no peace without Russia in mm. Europe. Mm. Therefore. We must be talking, 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 talking. Dialogue is the solution. Let's find uh, ways how we can get along because there is no peace without Russia. This is the traditional Ostpolitik kind of, right? The open the doors we have to bring. Yeah. Ostpolitik, this yeah. is the view held by, uh, even, even uh, you know, proclaimed by Germany, mm. by Austria, by big countries. It's not a... It's not a, a kind of obscene view. Mm. And then you have the view that says, with Russia, there can never be peace in Europe and talking to Russia makes no sense because all they do is lie, cheat and steal. Mm. So we should stop talking to Russia because having peace with them is a hopeless endeavor. And these are, you know, Poland, Baltics, uh, depending on the government, some others. Uh, and, and to reconcile these two positions which I'm, of course, paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. So nobody says that, but I'm paraphrasing. <coughs> to reconcile these two positions is very, very, very difficult. Is very difficult. Therefore, there is no proper Russia policy of the European Union. And we've seen already, Croatian president said, in case mm -hmm. there is a war, Croatian soldiers certainly no participating. Orban for whom I have really no respect uh, in other in other fields, going to Moscow, uh, standing next to Putin. So Putin, I mean, that dividing the European Union is a, a, a strategic goal of, of Russian foreign policy is very clear. Yeah. Yeah. They're succeeding. They're very, very well succeeding at that. Yeah. Well, well, Hungary is, a, is an EU member and a NATO member, right? So, I mean, you couldn't Absolutely. get a more, 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 more powerful symbol... Uh, you know, of, of, of effectively your tactical success, really. I mean, because it is tactical, I mean, from a very absolutely. small perspective, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Mm. So so that's that. Uh, I think it was very clear also from Putin's uh, statements that he did not want to communicate that he will attack Ukraine in, you know, in 24 hours, that he did not want to communicate. Um, and, of course, in diplomacy, what you say publicly and what you say privately is always, always, always different. So whatever he said publicly, it was very well curated to arrive, to make us ask exactly these questions, mm. I would say. Mm. 
and then uh, and I going back to the concentric circles because I really that's uh, I'm a visual learner and that to me works really well. I can see the circles in my head. It strikes me as though there is you know that there needs to be some sort of a, a circle that's nudging from the outside into and maybe through the outer one into the kind of <laughs> second one, which is Europe and European issues. And we're seeing you know, a resurgence of the yeah. UK that's become very vocal and it's almost demanding that, you know, Europe respond. Uh, it's been it's been sending weapons, for, you know, from the first moment this erupted. We're seeing Macron, you know, standing up. Of course, he's got election this year. So he's standing up. He wants to be the leader of Europe and he may, wants to make a European solution. Um how do you yeah. how how do you see this playing out? I mean, they're all. It seems to me that all of these big European countries, and they're all in one way. And I remember, I think Johnson has a call with with Putin today. Uh, Mario Draghi had a call with him yesterday. Uh, yeah. you know, Macron was. What's that? Sorry, I'm sure that Mr. Putin will will uh, very much love the fact that he gets called by all these European leaders who have these little bilateral discussions with him and not one line to a united Europe. This is the dream of Russian foreign policy. Yeah, right. Okay. So Which, can, yeah, okay. They curate their messages nicely. Yeah. Uh, what he says to Johnson, what he says to Macron, what he says to Draghi, what he says to Schultz. Yeah. So, yeah. Then, then Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. And that speaks um, to that point, right? That speaks to that point that there's no united European or EU yes, yes, uh, yes. foreign policy. Hmm. Indeed. Uh, I mean, on, on, the, on the British position... I think on the on the US one has to be careful to uh, uh, to say it's it's really only to detract detract from you know domestic problems. Uh, when you think about Boris Johnson, it's it's in my opinion very obvious that he wants to distract from his you know from the disastrous situation he's in yeah. in, the, in the House of Commons and with his yeah, own power yeah. position. Yeah. So so here here we go uh, here we go of this. But when you talk about the concentric circles. I would like you to remind. I would like to remind you of another, uh, uh, let's say, image that we talked about, and these are the three baskets of the OSCE of the Helsinki Final Act. And when Russia says they have security concerns, they mean they they, they may only talk about the first basket, you know, the weapons mm-hmm. and the soldiers. But what they really probably have is security concerns in all three in all three baskets, particularly in the economic and environmental. We we talked about that. We talked mm. about that, mm-hmm. right? So when you look at the Russian rhetoric recently, very interestingly, Russia continues talking about the OSCE. Lavrov spoke about the OSCE. We need the OSCE, the Istanbul, the indivisibility of security. I told, I told, I said, I, I talked in the beginning about you know the comprehensive concept of security. Lavrov has invoked that, the indivisibility of security, the indivisibility of security. So a way forward. I mean, the question is how do we get out of the, how do we get out of this conundrum now? It's, it's very difficult to. You know, once you've ramped up these tensions to to climb down again, the Americans are going to say, "Oh, sorry, we are was we were wrong. There mm-hmm. was no imminent invasion since November. The invasion is imminent, which mm-hmm. is very strange. Mm-hmm. So, one way out would be to have a security conference for Europe 
that has as its goal to find a security architecture which really makes everybody feel secure. And that means Russia needs to feel secure, but Ukraine needs to feel secure, and the West needs to feel secure. Uh, and there is only one organization where this, which seems predestined to do this, and this is the OSE. Hmm. And I mean, that's not, that doesn't, that strikes me as a, a reasonable demand and request, is it not? Um, it, it, uh, to have a conference like that is, uh, well, as a, I think it's a reasonable, dem- a reasonable demand and a reasonable request. The question is if, if enough parties see enough interest, hmm. uh, have enough interest in having such a conference. Hmm. Uh, but having a conference and talks and talks, as Churchill said, you know, jaw, jaw is better than war, war. Mm. Uh, if that's the way out where people can discuss, you know, in a long process, why not in a long process mm. to really discuss European security, including economic connectivity, i.e. gas, including human rights, uh, including weapons and soldiers, um, that would be a good solution for this. Mm. And yeah. the irony, the irony of this would also be another one. If something like that happens. If you look up the history of the Helsinki Fan Act in 1975, the birth of comprehensive security, it was in essence a do an opportunity, a forum in which to talk about human rights with the Soviet Union. That's why you have all these Helsinki commissions, Helsinki charter, Helsinki this, Helsinki that. Mm. Because for the first time, <coughs> the Soviet Union agreed to talk with the West about human rights in exchange that the West would talk with them about, you know, weapons and soldiers and tanks and atomic weapons. Uh, I think we can see something here. That would be also quite interesting. We say, listen, if you want to talk about concretely about security, let's talk about your human rights issue. Let's talk about Navalny. Let's talk about elections. Let's talk about this. I'm a little bit idealistic here and maybe not very realistic. But if you w- want to look for a constructive way out, if you want to have some kind of a, you know, policy, that would be the way to that would be the way to move forward. Mm. And when I'm saying this could be a long-term process, uh, let us also let us also recall that Mr. Putin is not a young man anymore, huh? and whether and and this process could you know outlast uh, Mr. Putin. The Helsinki process lasted a couple of years. So that, 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 that is something I could say uh, how that would be one way to get out of this really difficult situation at the moment. The, the, the only, I guess, piece to that is that the US doesn't necessarily sit at the helm, if it's, uh, certainly if it's headed by the OSCE. Well, the US uh, is at the US is a member of the OSCE, so is Russia. Um, and I think to have a, uh, a conference and a forum in which... Uh, in which the parties and the partners uh, could, uh, you know, meet each other at at, uh, at at the same eye level, you know, is is not necessary is not necessarily bad. Mm. But what is also uh, important in this context is that Europe, the European Union, Western Europe, will really have uh, will really have a you know a, a position, and I do think that European 
interests on pan-European security are not necessarily 100% overlapping mm. with US interests in pan-Europeans. That means there should be a European-led design for a, they are largely overlapping, but not 100% overlapping. Uh, so there should be a, a European-led design of European security policy that is not necessarily 100% dictated by the United States. And I will go one step further. The role that Ukraine plays in such a European security architecture, yeah, um, that needs to make everybody feel secure, including Ukraine, including Russia. My, my, my question, I guess, would be, does Putin have a leg to stand on when he makes the demands that he makes and the claims that he makes? That, you know, the West is, I guess, you know, what, and what he's also saying, what he said earlier today, is that uh, while it's okay for a country, and speaking about Ukraine, to choose its own uh, security arrangements, what the West is professing, why you know why the West can't say Ukraine will never join NATO. Uh, Putin is also saying, yeah, that's that's fine, but it, a country can't guarantee or improve its own security at the cost of another country. Um, that's you know, right. We, and that, that again, I mean, looking at it pragmatically, that seems like a reasonable statement to make, notwithstanding that this is Putin we're talking about, who you know has proven to be. A rogue actor in, at times, like you said before, you know, he's, he's, he's certainly pushing for the Russian interests and, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's a rational actor, uh, but without a doubt, he's invaded Crimea, he's invaded, uh, you know, eastern Ukraine, uh, etc. So, you know, we, we're not talking about a, a, a peace-loving man, uh, we are talking about a pragmatist who will exploit opportunities. So, you know, how, how firstly, you know, how, how credible are, are his claims uh, and then how credible is it that if he does secure some uh, smaller victories from the US that he actually backs down as opposed to uh, continue slowly disintegrating the U- Europe, European Union, which is, you know, he's doing that rather well. Um, indeed. And, and, and when you, you started your question by asking, does Putin have a leg to stand on? Um, and that depends on what he wants. And uh, we all don't know. We all don't know what he wants. I've speculated about this. I've mentioned a couple of topics, you know, dividing Europe, getting Nord Stream two, asserting yourself as a great power. Uh, I'm sure there is a mixture of this that he wants. So, but we don't know exactly what he wants and what is, you know, enough. Mm. What is just, you know, that's just good enough to, you know, back down. Um. And because we don't know that, we don't know whether he actually has a leg to stand on. What he, you know, if you don't know what's good enough for him, you what he really wants yeah. to achieve, it's it's hard to say. But what I can say a little bit also in conclusion is again has to do with the uh, with European security architecture, uh, and I think it's very important. And this is one of the OSCE principles that no country can increase its security at the cost of of another of another country and this is just a let's say a different way to say we need a european security architecture where every participant really feels secure and that goes for russia and that goes for ukraine 
What we cannot do, what we cannot do is say as the West, listen, Russia, you've, you've, you, you should feel secure enough. We have determined that you're actually secure. Um, but we can also not do that with Ukraine. Many people would be saying this very popular where I come from. Why doesn't Ukraine just, you know, why don't they just choose neutrality like Austria? It would be so great. You know, all the problems would be solved. It's because the majority of Ukrainians would not feel secure if they chose neutrality. Their neutrality has been violated. They have, they, their, their trust has been broken. So to find a new arrangement where everybody really in their own conviction, not in the conviction of others, actually feels secure, I think that's the challenge that we have to overcome now. And that's also how we will get out of this conundrum that we have at the moment between Russia and the West. That is, uh, yeah, that is hugely insightful, actually. That 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 has uh, answered a lot of my questions because one of the things that, you know, Putin's being attacked on is, you know, he's trying to increase his sphere of influence. Uh, but I think you made the point right at the start. You know, he's also talking about the uh, NATO sphere of influence. But in reality, it's not even NATO, it's US. Uh, and again, we all know, uh, you know, NATO is led by US and, you know, NATO is the US uh, in many ways. Uh, so, of course, you know, any even though Ukraine was nowhere near or is nowhere near joining NATO, um, you know, in any near future, uh, even mm -hmm. any kind of whispers or, or talks of that uh, or leading towards Europe is certainly going to add uh, fuel to that fire. Yeah. yeah. Wolfgang, it's been absolutely... Okay. Fantastic. A very insightful conversation. Thank you very much for uh, giving me so much Thank uh, you. of your time. Thank really you, Maz. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Voices of War. You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com.